Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I've got a little bit more to get off my chest about the state of the American society. And I wanted to concentrate on this idea that we're just far too divided and irreconcilably divided, according to some people, to the point where a national divorce is in order. We ought to just admit that the red states and the blue states have a completely different way of looking at the world, and there's just no way to make this political union work anymore. Now, of course, I'm all for that for different reasons, but I wanted to dig into this idea of us being this divided, at least politically, and see if it holds any water, because I'm not so sure that it does. And to put it another way, I think Americans agree on way too much. Now, the way this has played out over the last several years, the storyline has been something like this, that on one side, you have the people who supported Donald Trump, and they have one way of looking at the world, and it is just the complete opposite way from the way the people who voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016 looked at the world. And I want to read you something that I wrote four days before the election. I'll post this on the show notes page. The article was called Earth to Washington, D.C. Russia will never give up ports in Syria and Ukraine. Okay, so this was six years ago now that at least I was writing about this country that is dominating the American news cycle. By the way, just as an aside, I've written for many nationally known news websites. I wrote for the Washington Times for a few years. I've written for Huffington Post, now HuffPost. I've written articles that were published in Newsweek, Foundation for Economic Education. I have learned a few things about the business over the years. One of them being that there's a huge percentage drop-off in the amount of people who stay on a news site if they have to scroll down to see what they can't see when they first go to the site. So I want you to just 
take a moment and go to all of the news sites after you're done with this podcast, ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and look at all the news on those sites that you don't have to scroll down for. And you'll notice that there's no news about anything going on in this country or on this continent on the top half of those websites. So that should strike you as odd. That is not normal. And certainly you should not feel that that's just coincidental. I'll just leave that there. But getting back to this article from six years ago, here's how it opens up. There are four days to go before the election and voters are up to their ears and the usual cries of most important election of our lifetimes. And we're at a crossroads. The latter suggesting, as usual, that the very nature of the republic is at stake, if only. In reality, there are very few policy differences between the two major party candidates. And again, remember, I'm talking about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Both are protectionists. Yes, Trump presents his protectionism with the rhetoric of a classic conservative mercantilist, while Clinton tries to sound more like a socialist unionist, but in the end... They are both willing to champion destructive trade policies to appease special interest. Both promise to sign family leave legislation, forcing employers to provide this compensation, which they will either subtract from monetary compensation or add to the prices of their products. Neither Trump nor Clinton have said anything remotely suggesting they will rein in government spying or protect civil liberties in general, And they both promised yet another war of some sort in the Middle East, this time against paper tiger boogeyman of the month, ISIS. But there is one significant policy upon which the candidates appear to disagree, relations with Russia. Trump has stuck by his position to attempt to negotiate with Vladimir Putin, despite the ammunition it has given Clinton in portraying him as being influenced by a foreign power and even a Putin puppet. And then basically, I spend the rest of the article making the argument that, first of all, the two countries where at the time the United States had either recently or was still involved in regime change operations, still involved in Syria, and had recently regime changed Ukraine for the second time, were not coincidentally home to Russia's two only warm water ports besides Vladivostok on the Sea of Japan and that Russia was never going to give up those ports, and the fact that Hillary Clinton was saying that she would put up a no-fly zone over Syria just disqualified her as a candidate for the presidency. Now, notice this is something that Joe Biden is wise enough, even in his present mental condition, not to do. And no matter how many times Zelensky presses for it, or at least so far, Biden realizes that a no-fly zone over Ukraine, shooting down Russian planes, is the beginning of a nuclear war, something that just cannot happen, that no side can win. So at least Biden represents a better choice than Hillary Clinton did. Joe Biden really is an old-school liberal, and I don't believe that he really buys a lot of the, the wokeism part of the, the Democratic Party. He's willing to go along with it because he's corrupt. As I said in my last podcast, he's been for sale for his whole political career. 
So he'll mouth the words, but deep down, Joe Biden thinks that a lot of the woke far left is a bunch of malarkey, as he likes to say. But in any case, he's also been somebody who's had a little bit of restraint on the war machine. Not that he's not knee-deep in corruption in Ukraine along with his son, but it is true that he did speak out against regime change wars 10 years before the United States finally got out of Afghanistan. So I'm not here campaigning for Joe Biden. I think he's terrible. I'd actually rather have Trump in there, even though I didn't vote for him either. But compared to Hillary Clinton, a little more sanity and, believe it or not, a little more connection to reality, despite Joe's obvious mental decline. But getting back to the differences between the candidates outside of foreign policy, Donald Trump did not represent this radical change in the way things were done in Washington. He said he would not touch any of the entitlements, meaning Social Security and Medicare, Republicans are always silent on Medicaid, the massive health care program for poor people, which should go as well because it's not helping the poor people. But in the conservative mind, I think they'd be willing to get rid of that because they see that as welfare for poor people, people that don't vote for Republicans, for one thing, and just people they don't like. Well, Medicare is no less a welfare program than Medicaid. It's just a different group of people, some of whom do vote for Republicans. And this is one of the reasons I say that America is not as divided as people make it out to be. If you're going to significantly change the federal government, well, there's two places that you can cut to make it smaller or change to make it different. And that's the entitlements and the military. And nobody has run on and most people have not voted for anybody who's going to lay a finger on either one. Donald Trump, of course, wanted to make the military much bigger, and conservatives in general never saw a spending increase on the military or the police that they didn't like. So they're all for bigger government there. The liberals used to be anti-war and pro-civil liberties like free speech, due process, and against unreasonable searches and seizures. Well, that's all gone out the window whether intentionally or not, and whether they're aware of the writings or not, the liberals are really just pursuing the philosophy of Herbert Marcuse, one of the founders of critical theory, the theory developed by socialists in Germany who eventually fled the Nazis to America to try to come up with a new strategy for Marxism, seeing as there was no proletarian revolution which they had all kinds of rationalizations for to help them avoid confronting the reality that there was no workers' rebellion because the workers were a lot better off after the Industrial Revolution and their living standards had skyrocketed under the capitalist system. So Marcuse wrote an essay called Repressive Tolerance that I will link to on the show notes page, which basically said that the tenets of what used to be called liberal society free speech, freedom of association, etc., were really going to have to be pushed aside for the so-called fascists, which was anybody to the right of Vladimir Lenin, because the conservatives were going to be able to hide behind free speech forever and never allow the socialist utopia to become a reality. So I'll link to repressive tolerance. I think it would be interesting reading for anybody who wonders 
how the heck did this stuff on college campuses and all the silencing of people, where did it come from? Well, the blueprint was laid out in the 1960s by Herbert Marcuse. So this is nothing new. So at the moment, the so-called liberals are very hostile towards free speech and they're trying to use both governmental and corporate institutions to stamp it out. The conservatives are pushing back, citing traditional American values, the Bill of Rights, to object both to government censorship and private censorship, the latter not being a Bill of Rights issue. It's not a free speech issue for Facebook to kick me off their platform, shadow ban my posts, whatever. It's their property. And while I'm on a rant, let me just say that I'm a little uncomfortable with my fellow libertarians when they make it a point to disparage private property. Yes, there is a distinction between invoking government force against censorship and just complaining about it. And of course, everybody has a right to complain about something a private company does. But I think a lot of us are a little bit too quick to throw that, well, they are a private company line out. Now, I understand that this is a reaction to mostly left-leaning libertarians jumping on every woke censorship bandwagon they can find and very obtusely saying, well, the market has spoken. Yeah, I get it. But I just don't like it being normalized that we are disparaging private property. And the little disclaimer buried somewhere in your essay or podcast where you're not invoking the government, I don't think that's helpful because most of the population, when you complain that loudly about private companies doing something they have a right to do, what they're hearing is the government should do something about it. Let's be honest with ourselves. But I don't want to get too distracted with the tiny group called libertarians because let's face it, America is dominated by conservatives, liberals, and that noble third of the population who just doesn't care, although I think they're being foolish not to care, because while you might not be interested in politics, the politically oriented are definitely interested in you and your life and your money. So just getting to this issue of free speech, the essence of the First Amendment and its equivalent in almost every state constitution, I believe every state constitution has a protection identical or very similar to the federal government's First Amendment. The essence of it is that speech is just not something the government has a role to play in at all, other than defending somebody's right to speak against a private actor who might commit violence against that person, which is pretty rare these days. Now, you don't have a right to free speech in my house, and I don't have a right to free speech in yours. I can ban words in my house. I can say there's things you can't talk about. I could say that you're compelled to say certain things you don't believe as a condition of entering my house, and you can do the same. And the remedy for that is for me not to come to your house if I don't like your rules. But neither of the two political tribes believes that. They want the government to regulate speech. They just want them to regulate it their way. And this is somewhat related to one of the bigger expenses for at least homeowners who pay for the public school system. First of all, nobody wants to get rid of the public school system, which absolutely we should get rid of the public school system. I can't figure out why it is universally accepted that the school system should be Soviet. 
I, I don't understand why at least the conservatives who claim to have some affinity for private property and markets just go along with this assumption that the government should run the schools. Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you like to read books as much as I do, there comes a time when you realize you just won't ever find the time to read every book you're interested in. Well, I have great news. Blinkist offers the key ideas from nonfiction bestsellers in as little as 15 minutes. For most books and their extensive library, you can choose to read or listen to Blinks, which summarize the main ideas and allow you to absorb whole books in the time it takes to run your daily errands or commute to work. Not only does Blinkist allow you to glean the information you need from books you don't have time to read, it helps you to decide which ones to spend time reading and get more details. You can try out Blinkist for free and get 20% off your first year by going to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Blinkist. Start your free trial and get 20% off today. And now let's get back to the show. Work on the answer, then you quietly save the day. You were right, Mr. Spock, about everything you said. We humans just are logical, too crazy in the head. The only objection I've ever heard to completely privatizing the education system is that poor kids would not be able to get an education. Okay, well, how do poor kids eat? They don't go to government grocery stores. They don't stand in government bread lines. There are programs for the indigent that gives them money so they can go into the private market and purchase food, which is a lot more vital to human life than either education or health care, by the way. But none of them want to privatize the education system. And I'll tell you the real reason for this is that because both the conservative and liberal political worldviews view education the same way all political thinkers in history have viewed it, which is an instrument to indoctrinate the correct political ideas in the next generation. This is something that used to be openly acknowledged. If you've read my book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From?, I go through some of the main thinkers in both conservative and liberal politics, going back really all the way to Plato the original communist who wanted the state to seize the children from the parents so that it could educate them properly. But both Hobbes, the father of modern conservatism, and Rousseau, the father of modern liberalism, wanted the state to have control over education for that reason, to make sure that children grew up with the right political ideas. And Jefferson, of course, was on board with this. And in my book, I believe I do cite the resolution he wrote for the Board of Governors of the University of Virginia that basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, hey, since we're using tax money here, we better figure out what political values we're teaching the people in this school. And if you want to know where the American idea of liberty and natural rights comes from, you'll read Locke and Sidney. He was referring to John Locke and Algernon Sidney. Okay, I'd like people to read that to get their political ideas from as well, but he does acknowledge that the purpose of education in his mind is to indoctrinate the correct political ideas. 
And so there really is no difference in principle between these two tribes on what the education system should be used for. One side just wants it to teach them communist ideas like critical race theory, which is just a subset of critical theory, which I talked about before, starting with Marcusa. And the other side wants to teach them conservative ideas, which, as I think I prove pretty well in my book, are not the founding American ideas. The Declaration of Independence, at the very least, lays out a libertarian philosophy of government where the government has one job, secure our inalienable rights, period. Now, of course, Hamilton and the Federalists had a lot more work for the government to do, but they weren't around very long. And when Jefferson won in 1800, he actually referred to that election in later years as the Revolution of 1800. So far from the founding principles did he believe the Republic had gone in just a few years under the Federalists. So his screwy ideas on education notwithstanding, Jefferson said in his first inaugural that what America needed was a wise and frugal government that would keep people from harming each other and otherwise leave them free to pursue their own industry. That's the libertarian non-aggression principle. That was the principle of government up until Woodrow Wilson ran and won twice on getting rid of it. So what do we have today? We have two tribes that really don't question the enormous government that we have, not just at the federal level, but at the state levels. They both agree we should have this Soviet education system, which is more expensive every year and gets worse results every year, just like everything the Soviets did, why they collapsed, but somehow it's going to work in education. Nobody questions that. There was certainly a difference in the response of some states, especially later in the pandemic, as far as how draconian they were in instituting restrictions, none of which worked, by the way. And the scientific community had known that mask mandates, lockdowns, social distancing, all of it, that none of this worked. We knew that since right after the Spanish flu, when people were arrested in San Francisco for not wearing their masks, but the Anthony Fauci of their time, Wilfred H. Kellogg, was honest enough to do a study of the cities that did and did not impose these kinds of restrictions and concluded that they hadn't made any difference whatsoever. Every retrospective RCT study afterwards found the same result that non-pharmaceutical interventions made no difference in mitigating the spread of respiratory viruses. But I digress. Yes, there were differences in the way Florida, and especially South Dakota, which never locked down, treated COVID-19, and the way some of the deep blue states like New York and California did. But nobody questioned that once there were lockdowns, that massive government funds should be sent out to the people who are not going to work because everybody believes that they can live in a fantasy where you stop producing things, but you can keep on consuming while we're paying for that now. Nobody questions the worldwide standing army that's bleeding us dry. And believe me, the way the government is financed, the entitlements are losing a little bit of money. They ran surpluses for years until the baby boomers really started to retire en masse. And they do all kinds of economic damage to the structure of the economy. But where the big deficits come from is this bloated standing army that's 
basically just warehousing people in a government jobs program all over the world. I mean, notice it's not fighting Russia right now. As I've said on previous podcasts, you can't fight a conventional war against a nuclear power because that's a nuclear war. So what do we have it for? To invade another third world country? It's just a jobs program. We'd be better off if those people went on welfare than join the army because they won't cause as much trouble going on welfare. And it's the same dead loss where we're just taking capital and wasting it. I'm sorry, was that unpatriotic? So let me leave you with a few thoughts on the divisions I'd like to see in America. And I'll start from the beginning, the very beginning. How did the United States become the United States instead of just colonies from Great Britain? Well, a lot of credit is historically given to a guy named Thomas Paine, who took a lot of Americans who were unhappy with the British government, but mm, 100% sure that the United States should pursue independence. And he wrote a pamphlet called Common Sense. And that pamphlet was read by hundreds of thousands of Americans at a time when the population was not very big. And it's credited with convincing a critical mass of Americans to support independence. Well, I don't know how many people have actually read that pamphlet, but he begins his argument with a section called Of the Origin and Design of Government in General, with concise remarks on the English Constitution. So before he's going to convince Americans to support independence, the first thing he tries to do is say, well, what do we have a government for anyway? And I'm going to read you the first two paragraphs of this and see how far we've strayed from these ideas. So he starts out, very first sentence, some writers have so confounded society with government as to leave little or no distinction between them, whereas they are not only different, but have different origins. Society is produced by our wants and government by our wickedness. The former promotes our happiness positively by uniting our affections, the latter negatively by restraining our vices. The one encourages intercourse, the other creates distinctions. The first is a patron, the last a punisher. Society is in every state a blessing, but government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil, in its worst state, an intolerable one. So why does Paine start his essay this way? Because he wants to make a distinction between all of those things about society that are voluntary. That's what he means, that all of the associations we have, all of the economic intercourse between us, all of the things that really make life worth living are part of society. And government, on the other hand, is merely a punisher of our wickedness, or in other words, like the Declaration of Independence says, it is there to secure our inalienable rights, wickedness being violation by someone else of those inalienable rights. And because some of the people some of the time will engage in this wickedness, violate the property of other people, Paine says that, quote, he finds it necessary to surrender up a part of his property to furnish means for the protection of the rest. So you can see this is very consistent with one of my previous podcasts. What do you have a right to? You have a right to what you own. That's all. All rights are property rights. That includes the right to life and the right to liberty, of course. 
not just money, stuff, and land. And the purpose of the government is to secure that, which it has failed miserably to do for the last 246 years, which is why I became an anarcho-capitalist. But I'm not asking all of you to join me. Hey, I'll take the so-called minarchist limited government described in both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, as terrible as the Constitution is in some respects. I'll take it. But we don't have even a significant minority of people who is even arguing for that. Certainly not people who thought the Donald Trump administration was wonderful, since like every Republican administration, it increased spending year over year twice as fast as the previous Democrat, and that's even before COVID. And obviously, nobody who voted for Joe Biden or Hillary Clinton is looking for a government like that either. If you were really looking for a government that would look like that, well, yes, the military would be the largest spending line on the federal budget, and it could still be cut by at least 70%, still allowing you to have the biggest one in the world if you really feel that strongly about it. Don't forget that Vladimir Putin is this enormous threat to the whole world on one-tenth the military spending of the United States. So anybody who's looking for a government like the one described in either founding document, like the one that was there before the progressive era, you've got to repeal the New Deal root and branch, as I've said before. Get rid of the entire regulatory structure. Give Congress back the legislative power. Again, not that this is ideal, but at least there's some adversarial process in making laws. That's the whole idea of having elected legislators is they might not all vote the same way. When you have all the laws being made by the executive branch, well, of course you don't have that anymore. You've got to get rid of the entitlement programs. I mean, really, these are a scam. And what a relic from the 20th century, the early 20th century in in the case of Social Security which is the Ponzi scheme, as I've talked about before. So those are the kinds of divisions I want to see. I want to see a critical mass of people who want to get rid of all this government and return most of American life to society, all of it to society if I had my way, but at least most of it, because that's the essence of freedom. The essence of freedom is being able to choose how to dispose of your property whether that be your physical body, your liberty, or whether that be the fruit of all that work that you do, every dollar taken away from you without your consent, and all taxes are taken without your consent, you can say, yeah, I want to pay, but really doesn't have much meaning when you don't have a choice. So every dollar that's taken in taxes and spent the way someone else chooses to spend it rather than you is that much less freedom. And to the vapid responses of, well, money isn't everything, let me tell you, your freedom to build the life that you want, to have the future that you want, and that doesn't necessarily mean having a yacht or a private plane. That could mean sitting in a monastery and praying or doing academic work or painting or whatever it is that you dream about for the future, whatever it is you're working towards. In order to achieve that goal, you need to be able to keep the money you earn and dispose of it the way you see fit. That's the essence of the pursuit of happiness. If you ever wondered why it's a separate right called out from liberty, because you might think they're the same thing, 
No, the idea there is that every individual has their own idea of what their goals in life are, and they have a right, not a privilege, to pursue that goal, to pursue that happiness. And every single dollar that government takes away from you is a dollar diverted away from that pursuit of happiness and towards somebody else's idea. So that's a seed I wanted to plant that I'd like to see a lot more division in America and a lot more radical ideas than just we have to elect somebody who's going to change the slogans. And I'll tell you what really needs to go. Another piece of propaganda that you don't even realize you're falling for What is this idea that the president is supposed to, quote, unite the country? What does that mean? Are we all supposed to think the same thing, believe the same thing? No thanks. Sounds pretty 1984 to me. So don't fall for that. I don't want any president uniting anything. We should all be a lot more divided and we should all accept a lot less of the status quo. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.